perfect. Four lights. Okay. There are four lights. Every time. There are oh, four I'm lights. Sorry. Wait. wait. What, what, what's that from? No. Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, uh, okay. There's an episode where Picard is being tortured by the Cardassians. And he says to him, all you have to do is tell me that there are five lights. And every time it shows it, there are four lights, right? And he's like, I'll let you go. Mm. This pain can stop. You just need to tell me there are five lights. Mm. Of 1984. Yeah, yeah, very that. Yeah, yeah. That uh, um, episode got an award from Amnesty International. We're actually just going to talk about Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm in. I'll be ready for that. Absolutely. David Warner. I'm, I'm more ready for that than I have for this. Welcome, everyone, to Pem Pem Pals for episode four of Gundam The Origin Eve of Destiny. Uh, I'm, as always, Alex, and with me are my two co-hosts. Hi, this is Brian. Hey, I'm Ben. And this week we have a very impressive guest. At least he impresses <laughs> us. Uh, we got another Alex, Alex Zalbin of, what is your podcast called again? I'm so sorry. Sure. I do a ridiculous amount of podcasts, but the main one is Comic Book Club. It's a live show that we do every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Now online, as most things are, but we've been doing it for... Oh gosh, almost 15 years at this point. Wow. But there you go. You you introduced him as another Alex, but since he's Alex Zalben, I'm going to claim him as a Ben as well. <laughs> Oh, and I, I'm going to say that from now on, all of our guests have at least one of our names just to make it uh, a more interesting listening experience, you know, make make the listeners really have to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should really try to get Brian Ben-Ben then, to be honest. <laughs> Ben-Ben on Pen-Pen Pals? Yeah, that's perfect. Let's start working on it. Maybe Brian Michael Bendis, you know, we can mm-hmm. finagle that somehow. Put a bag over his head, drag him in. <laughs> I know you have a massive history with comic books and reporting on them and reviewing them, uh, but do you have much of a history with anime? No. Nope. Uh, do you have any? Thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I really don't. You know, the thing is, uh, like you said, I've been reading comics my entire life. Certainly, have got into tons of different areas of nerddom, but anime is one that I've just never really gotten into. Not because I don't like it, because. I think for me, anime is sort of the same way that comic books is for a lot of people where it feels like, where do I start? That's the biggest question that we always Mm. get, particularly from newbies on our show. We often have comedians on there who may or may not be comic book fans, and they often just don't know what to do. You wander into that comic book shop and it's so overwhelming, you immediately walk out. I think in a very similar way, I've always thought about getting into anime and then you click on it and see, oh, okay, there's, you know, 300 episodes of this. All right. I'm not quite sure what to do. And it's the exact same thing. It's like handing somebody Detective Comics 1034 and saying, here you go. And so I understand that intellectually, but emotionally it's never happened. To like give a little asterisk there, I've read a bunch of manga and mm-hmm. I've watched some anime based on that manga. Like I read, I think the first couple of volumes of Attack on Titan. Watched the first mm. episode of Attack on Titan thought, huh, this is different. than <laughs> Just to knock it back. <laughs> so this is maybe other than Neo Yokio on Netflix, which I don't know counts. <laughs> uh, this For this podcast, this is the most anime that I've watched of one series. Yeah, Neo Yokio is a very uh, 
singular piece of art i think <laughs> it's, it's got so much going on there oh my gosh it's dead i love it i love the toblerone jokes it's a wonderful show but I, i'm not going to mistake it for out of bay <laughs> so how far back do you go with comics like um there was a publisher in the 80s called eclipse comics do you... mm-hmm. yeah they did a few mangas that they imported under their print i didn't start reading manga i think until much later you know to give the very brief overview of my comic book history so started reading as a kid i remember very distinctly my dad brought me these heathcliff and care bears comics he went to work in the city came back and i was like what are these these are awesome Uh, spoiler they're not awesome but they were very awesome (laughs) at the time and then when i'd go into work with him he'd bring me into forbidden planet specifically in new york he used to go there all the time started subscribing to comics going to comic book conventions was super into it for a really long time Uh, And then as I grew older, I decided that, well, I was too cool for comics or something like that, which is not true. I did way (laughs) dirty stuff at the same time. But for some reason, I was like, no, I'm not into it anymore. But during college, I'd be waiting for the bus at the Port Authority or something like that. I'd always say, well, I guess I'm here anyway. I guess I should go to the newsstand and just read these comics. Not that I'm into comics. So I was still reading comics at the time. I wasn't reading comics. Um, but most of that was superhero stuff. Most of it was Marvel and DC stuff. I didn't really broaden out from there. Um, but once mm. I graduated from college and I did get sucked back into comics again, I decided, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I really got to educate myself better about it and not just know the stuff that I know. So that included a lot of just very classic graphic novels and runs from comic books, but it also meant trying to branch out to at least some basic manga stuff and exploring some other things. So you know, I read all of Death Note. I read Pluto. Oh my gosh, 20th Century Boys. I was super into Iron Walk Jan. I don't know if you guys know that one. Uh, it's a cooking manga and the guy is a total <laughs> jerk. So it's very, very funny. Uh, but I was super into those and read a ton of volumes. But then ultimately at around the same time, writing about comics became my full-time career. It's since morphed into writing about TV full-time and editing full-time, but I still keep up with comic books for comic book clubs. So just because of the volume I had to do there, working with Marvel, working with DC, working with Image Comics and other places like that, the manga fell to the side again, and I, I didn't necessarily branch off into the anime version either. Right. Real quick, what was the uh, the first writing gig that you did for the comic industry? I wrote a couple of books for Marvel, uh, just a couple of little books. I wrote a Hulk story where he goes on a date with Dazzler. Uh, it's in canon. <laughs> So you can't erase that. I also wrote a four issue story (laughs) called Thor and the Warriors Four. Sorry, I I just want to let the audience know that Alex's jaw just dropped when he started hearing that you (laughs) (laughs) written a Hulk story. Uh, I wrote a four issue comic called Thor and the Warriors Four, which is an all age comic which uh, brought Thor and Power Pack together. I don't know if you know them, and that was kind of a dream. (laughs) The biggest, most I don't know if it was most read, but the most distributed comic I wrote is I got hired to do a licensed property for Marvel, which was an X-Men comic that was given out in Taco Bell Happy Meals. So (laughs) that's amazing. uh, Behind the little behind the scenes thing I'll say about that is I was pretty much given free reign to do whatever I wanted with the story. And I wrote kind of almost a dream story with uh, one of my favorite X-Men characters, Kitty Pride, uh, fighting this guy named Cameron Hodge, which is one of my favorite creepy X-Men villains. But the Mm -hmm. one thing they said is, hey, at some point, 
we need to see the X-Men eating some healthy food because we're giving this out at the meal. <laughs> and as a joke in the last panel, I wrote, Cyclops is eating a big thing of celery. And I think I put in parentheses, haha, just kidding. But then the artist actually drew it in and it ended up in the comic book. And it's like Wolverine with an apple and Cyclops with a big thing of celery. And it's very silly. Uh, so the Thor and the Warriors 4 comic, uh, that series, that had like kind of a social message tied into it? Kind of. I mean, it's so what I was looking to do with that comic, or at least what I was asked to do, was there was these power pack series before it, which were great. Uh, I love them. All ages series, teaming them up with the X-Men or the Fantastic Four or something like that. But there were all these very done in one stories. There was no continuing story. So what they asked me to do, they said, hey, we're doing this Thor story. We don't want it to be the same thing. We want some sort of continuing story. So I wrote a story about power pack who, if people don't know who are listening to this, they're a bunch of kid heroes in the Marvel Universe they find out that their grandmother is dying. And so they realize, wait a second, our grandmother's dying. She's in the hospital. We live in a world with all these gods who live forever. So we could very easily ask one of these gods like Thor, and he could just help us and help her live forever. Uh, and so they end up tracking down the golden apples of Idun, which is a thing for mythology, but also in the Marvel universe. Thor doesn't want to help them, but they try to track him down and track these apples down and ultimately go due to, spoiler alert, though you could probably see this coming, machinations from Loki, uh, find a way of stealing the apples, which is part of his plan to destroy Asgard and destroy Thor. Um, so it really was trying to tie into, hopefully, a deeper emotional story about how kids deal with death, because mm -hmm. at the end, there's not really an easy message. Again, spoiler alert, they don't solve the problem. <laughs> they don't yeah. They don't make their grandma live forever. Um, but at the same time, try to have a fun adventure that kids could read at the same time. Mm -hmm. With my social work background, it's, it's a story that I really appreciated. So well done. Thank you. I appreciate that. I was just going to say, I, I think in the, um, the first episode for the, the anime that we're, we're talking about now, one of the things we brought up is a possible parallel between kind of mecha and superheroes. And so... It might be interesting to, to hear your thoughts at, at some point of if you think there's something there. Uh, can I set that up a little bit? Yeah. Um, superheroes are a part of like Western mythology now, just like the, the classic superhero archetype. Like, what is that exactly? It'd be cool to identify that to see what kind of parallels there might be in your classic anime hero. Other than being heroic <laughs> and potentially having some sort of powers and occasionally, but not always wearing some sort of suit to tie it into the show that we're going to be talking about. Ooh. It could be really anything. And that's sort of the joy of superheroes is it's probably the same thing. I don't want to say I look at it this way because I certainly don't, but I'm sure a lot of outside people look at anime and they're like, eh, it's this one thing, you know, it's all mm -hmm. one thing, but of course it's not one mm -hmm. thing. Just like manga is not one thing. Comic books are not one thing. They're all innumerable things. And that's one of the things that's kind of kept me with superhero comics all these years is you can have somebody like Spider-Man, who is this very clear character of having the classic with great uh, power comes great responsibility. He feels guilty about everything all the time, but still fights through no matter what and always tries to help people and always tries to save people. But then mm -hmm. arguably you also have people who are considered part of these superhero universes, like say the Punisher, whose power is to shoot people with guns. So, mm -hmm. you know, he still wears a costume. He still has that extendia, but you even can get farther afield to like going over 
in the DC universe, uh, probably people know them from TV shows and movie now, but John Constantine is a character who initially at least didn't really have a costume. It's become this uh, thing where he has a trench coat and a lucid tie and that's his costume. But really it was just a guy who was kind of an asshole and into magic. And that was pretty much it. Uh, but he's in the superhero universe too. I guess the one thing that really defines them is wanting to do what's right, even though that mm. the definition of that might vary depending on what hero you're talking about. And frankly, depending on the universe and depending on what villain you're talking about as well, the same thing can apply. You know, you guys have probably seen, I imagine, Avengers Endgame, where they did a pretty good job of saying Thanos had a, a, you know, a good reason, relatively speaking, for what he was doing. He was just coming about it the wrong way. So both the heroes and the villains in any superhero universe, I think that's the main thing that defined them, is trying to get their ideals out there and bringing it back to the show that we're about to talk about, at least for the four episodes that I watched. That definitely seems to be very prevalent in the large majority of the characters. <laughs> so just one more thing before we get into it, and this is relevant, I promise. <laughs> uh, so like, again, like the Western superhero archetype, it seems like identity is a real big part of that. And I, it's not something I notice in most Japanese anime, mm. but this one, it is. Our main character has three identities by now. Mm -hmm. You know, full disclosure, I'm, I'm a person who identifies as being dual culture, Japanese and American. And I recognize some differences, uh, but I don't necessarily understand them. Why is this issue of identity like so central to the Western superhero mythos? If you want to go all the way back to the origins of it, it, it exists even before this. But, you know, with superheroes, you got Superman. This amazing stranger from the planet Krypton, the man of steel. In particular is the first real modern superhero. He's the one that kicked the whole thing off back in Action Comics. He had that dual identity. So part of it, at least, is just copying that stuff, right? If you want to go even farther back than that, though, you could talk about old movie serials with Zorro or stories there right. or um, other things that predate that. If you wanted to get really haughty about it, you could also talk about mythology and gods masquerading as humans all the time, oh, you know, like right. Zeus pretending to be other things so they could pass through humans. I think that's just, it's a story that's been around forever. And when you're talking mythology and you're adapting mythology, it's one of those things that already exists. I, I don't know necessarily what the reason is. Potentially it might be the exciting idea that gods could be walking among us, you know, not just in the clouds, but actually down on the ground. But I don't know that that's the only reason. That's interesting. And to take that uh, a little bit further or a little closer to what we're examining here, I think gods occupy a very particular place in mythology, but demigods or the progeny of gods, they often conform to that superhero archetype. Mm -hmm. Like Hercules walking the land, being part of humanity is much closer to uh, a Superman than say Zeus is. Gods are often depicted as distant parent figures. And we got a lot of that in this, in the first episode, you know, the, the two main characters, they lose both of their parents. And so they, as oh, yeah. progeny of Daikun and also new types, they are almost like demigods walking among people. I never made that connection. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I guess there is kind of a lot of Western influence in the Gundam story, now that I think about it. Yeah. Is that like especially in Origins or is that something that, that's been there kind of throughout? So maybe more explicitly in Origins. Uh, it does happen in at least Mobile Suit Gundam, the original series. 
in that the especially talking about the Federation and Xeon, we're we're talking about a uh, Japanese writer's Tamino's view of some Western cultures, and there's definitely a lot of. Uh, still Japanese influence there, but he characterizes and designs his characters, their uniforms based off of Western thought. So Mm. it is kind of a synthesis of the ideas uh, with the, I guess, aesthetic of Westernization. Uh, So the character Char in this series, it's revealed that he's someone else. He's putting on the glasses and then eventually this mask. Is his hidden or dual identity any part of the original series? Yeah. It is? Okay, like people don't know exactly who he is because of the mask? Yeah, until about halfway through the series when he meets back up with his sister. Mm, okay. Uh, they see each other and go, oh my gosh, is that? <laughs> I thought you were dead. <laughs> Big reveal. Yeah. This is episode four, Eve of Destiny. Uh, and we start off with a couple of rapid fire scenes. We get a ticker tape parade and we get Garma, Char, and Zena in the lead car because I guess they uh, were the most pivotal roles in the Dawn Rebellion. And then behind them are a bunch of cadets who took part in the rebellion, but they are holding the pictures of the other cadets who died in the conflict. And it's quickly replaced by a meeting between the zombies. Oh, we uh, we, we we blasted b- past something uh, oh, pretty sure. quick here. So just my perspective coming from the, the social work background, I was seeing a lot of like Erickson, like role development in this episode. In uh, just our opening scene, you know, there's like the Federation representatives and they're talking to the Xeon representatives. And uh, there's this tension about, hey, you did a rebellion and a bunch of our, you killed a bunch of our soldiers and now there's got to be consequences. Um, but that's just not the way the thing goes down. You know, Garen saying my little brother was the one who led it. You expect me to hand him over. And there's some posturing back and forth. And then Degwin comes into the room and addresses the Admiral Revel and lays it out like, oh, sorry. Um, by the way, you all have to leave. <laughs> so there's this huge political change. Uh, There's their celebration in the streets because it's what all the people wanted. They want to face down the Federation and be free from that yoke. Uh, but presumably in the past, you could not have that type of open celebration about that. Can I ask a very dumb question? Oh, sure. How big are these capsule city things? Like how many people live in them? Because I got a sense that they were pretty huge when we saw the Texas one, which I think was two episodes mm-hmm. back. But then all these city ones, I'm watching this parade and it feels like maybe there's only one street that everybody's just going back and forth <laughs> and up and down. Spoiler alert, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're pretty massive. Did you see the movie um, Interstellar? I did, yeah. Yeah, so at the end, there's this like long capsule type thing mm-hmm. and the way it spins, just like in 2001, like creates the gravity. So like that's the shape of these things. It's like... You know, the population of the state of California. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. Uh, you could have a hole blown in one of these things, and it'll be mm. several hours before the atmosphere, like the oxygen, runs out of these things. Cool. I-, I like that you immediately went to that. Here's all the ways I could kill these people. <laughs> that was pretty morbid. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I think you bring up an interesting thing. There's scale and scale being kind of a matter of perspective, um, because one of the themes I thought 
presented itself in this episode was distance and the difference between or the juxtaposition between physical distance and mental or emotional distance. Okay, and so then we have the scene with Degwin speaking to his children. Garma comes in and interrupts. Am I interrupting something important? And then Degwin says, I want to have a moment alone with Garma. Like they have this soft, quiet moment where he says, my son, like, feel my hand. Does it feel cold? He's like, no, your hand doesn't feel cold. Uh, Does my cheek feel cold? And he's like, no, your cheek doesn't feel cold. Let's just stay here like this for a bit. And what is happening here? It's super creepy because he's like college age, right? Yes. Like he just graduated military academy. (laughs) I I don't understand. Is this an aristocracy thing? I mean, speaking as a father of children who are not college age, first (laughs) of all, I don't know. Uh, But second of all... (laughs) He's a bad guy, right? Like Degwood is a bad guy in the show, or I guess arguably a bad guy, depending on which side you're rooting for. <laughs> but to see him have this soft moment, I at least got the sense that, oh, okay, all of them are humans. All of them have these different depths to each other and these other things going on. So we're not getting the simple good guy, bad guy, villain, hero dichotomy. Mm-hmm. You could side with the people who are in space, who I'm forgetting the name of, Spaceoids? Is that it? Yeah, Spaceoids. Spaceoids. Or you could side with Earth because we live there. So I'm sort of, I have a little bit of a a soft spot for Earth. Um, (laughs) But the same thing, uh, you know, without belaboring the point, I think what, what I at least got from that is not creepy so much as soft and sad and just this quiet moment of humanity in the middle of everything. Yeah. So, like, in the manga, Degwin is a little more sympathetic. Um, it's a little more clear that he did not assassinate uh, Daikun. And, and for the sake of um, the new Alex and our audience, it w- would it be helpful if we kind of, like, go through the, the names of the different characters or something like that? Or You can throw me into the deep end. I have no problem... <laughs> Well, Ben, like, so Alex, like Ben is also new to Gundam. Oh, okay. Uh, so this right. is also his first uh, jump into that pool. So let's, let's put Ben on the spot. Who, who are our cast of characters in this show? Oh God. Uh, <laughs> well, so, so Degwin is like the guy with the big face. who's Correct. normally sitting down. Yes. <laughs> one for one. And then uh, Giran, I just Googled to double check, but he's got the slicked back hair and uh, fine features. I'm I'm just going to describe everyone's physiognomy. No eyebrows. Um, (laughs) Giran has no eyebrows. uh, Garma is like purple hair androgynous. Correct. I wasn't here for the last episode, but the first time I saw him, I was like, is that a female like are there women at the military academy I'm... which then there were women at the military academy mm-hmm. he's got a gentle side yeah 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 can uh, you tell us who dozel is Ooh, dozel no clue is <laughs> 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 wait, wait wait i'm just gonna guess by elimination is dozel the big military dude yes uh, all right <laughs> all right uh, we're doing okay yeah and we do end up in the next scene in Dozel's office where we get two events. Uh, he dismisses Char and then a very strange interaction with uh, uh, Private Zena. Yeah. I, he's just not good with women, right? Dozel has a lot of problems in his personal life. He's a feeler, but uh, not a talker. Mm. But I'd like to know what the age difference is between Dozel, who was in charge of a military academy and now is propositioning in the worst way possible 
a girl who was a student at the military academy. Uh, she's about 20 and he's okay. at least 35, probably about 40. So yeah, he's probably about twice her age. It's it's pretty creepy and weird. Okay, well. He's uh, definitely twice her size. I yeah. that. <laughs> How's that going to work? I'm not sure. So do they, I don't know if this is getting into spoilers, but definitely watching that scene, knowing this is a prequel series, it felt like, okay, are they together in the mm -hmm. main series? Is that exactly all right? Because it came out of absolutely nowhere and then yeah. was not followed up at all. <laughs> so I figured it had to be at some point. I will say uh, Zena at least turns out to be pretty good for Dozel in the long run, but just the social work in me. I, I can't let this scene go by without saying uh, when there's a disparity of power, there cannot be true consent. Just that's my PSA. <laughs> just want to get that out there to everyone. Totally agree. But this is, uh, we do get to highlight Zena and Zena, I, I thought there was something with that name. I looked it up and there is a famous Zena uh, in American history, uh, Zena Henderson, who was an American science fiction writer, popular in like the mid 1900s. And she's most known for her work on either alien beings or humans who have extrasensory powers, hmm. usually ah. telepathy, telekinesis, and precognition, which are like the three things that new types are known for. Right. I don't know if it's Tamino, but someone writing this, I think, yeah. read her stories and wanted to give a little nod to her. So that's cool. Uh, and she's known as kind of a pre or proto feminist writer, which uh, they'll have a child together, uh, Maneva. And Maneva, way, 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 way down the line, kind of becomes a feminist icon within the political sphere. They're definitely really into the, uh, the naming stuff, you know, mm -hmm. so Von Braun definitely oh, yeah. jumped out at me. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, then this is maybe the only thing I've seen where not only do they do this naming stuff, but then at least when it's like Japanese words, they will like move it from subtext to text and just in really clunky dialogue like, explain <laughs> what, what the characters names mean so, oh yeah with uh when don tablo was talking to mirai yeah mirai and then it happens again uh with uh the yuki like snow thing oh right right is that is that next episode it is oh great okay i got a little misaligned i guess spoiler yuki uh, means snow in japanese now i don't even need to bother <laughs> short career in anime no more now but we uh we follow char out of the room and down to earth where he gets a job as a mobile worker operator he's working on uh, the site of jaburo which is going to be the federation's new underground base uh, which eventually Char will actually lead a siege of. Uh, and he's very clever in that he knows that mobile suits are coming and he wants to pilot one. And so he gets as much experience driving one of these mobile workers as he can. I don't know if this means anything or just it was just a weird synchronicity. So the last time we saw Earth, it was Don Diablo's place in Spain. Mm -hmm. And now Char is here in Brazil. Uh, Manaus. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, I found out recently that uh, Spain brought Chinese slaves to South America in the 1600s. Whoa. But they got them out of the South China Sea and then uh, trafficked them through India, which uh, Char's about to meet someone 
from India who's a slave. Yeah, when I was doing the outline, I was just like, whoa, that was a weird coincidence or synchronicity. Mm-hmm. Or maybe Tomino just read all kinds of crazy stuff and threw it all in there. Oh, I imagine he's very well read. Yeah, and then we we meet Lala, right? Uh, yeah. We go to the casino and there's this very brash man in... Is, is it a turban? Uh, I, I thought he was maybe supposed to be like a Sikh character. Okay. And he has a strange-headed man also serving under him, which we get the name of uh, Aga, I think, or yeah. Aga. And this girl, Lala, seems to have some sort of precognitive ability. She, she can see where the roulette ball is going to fall, right? <laughs> um, until they change dealers. And first of all, I love the second dealer she is just a a big crowd pleaser right yeah (laughs) in the very next scene when char meets lala in person uh she tells him that the second dealer was bad at her job and that's why she couldn't predict the ball anymore yeah what's what's going on there um I, I have all the manga and i went back and looked at this to see if there was more information in the manga and there's no explanation about like changing dealers and now now her new type abilities don't work. Well, so, so what I think it is, is it's not that she can like predict the future. It's that she can read people's minds and communicate to them. Okay. And the first guy is cheating for the casino. <gasps> oh. And so he's like directing it to certain places so she can figure out what he's doing to cheat and go against that. But then the second woman was actually just- It was because that new dealer was so bad at her job. Mm-hmm. Or like trying to cheat, but failing at cheating. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. I'll, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> yeah. I have two questions. Uh, I think I could figure this out having watched way too many TV shows and movies and everything. I assume new types are sort of the mutants, like the X-Men of this universe. They're the ones with the powers that. Yeah. Okay. That wasn't in any of the previous episodes, right? This is Lala is the first time in this series. We're seeing somebody with these powers. Yeah. So I didn't miss anything. And well, yes, sort of. Okay. Yes. Uh, you, sure. There's people who yeah, there's have hints powers. It's a big surprise. I got, I know. I get yeah. I've, I've watched these things before, <laughs> but, <laughs> but don't spoil things for me. Like the snow. Okay. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, the, uh, the other question that I had, and maybe this is also a thing further on, but do we get more information on why, Char wanted Lala because my impression here in this episode was not that the reason almost that he targeted this construction job was to get Lala. Like he was specifically aiming for her. It wasn't a random coincidence. This was part of his plan because he immediately goes over to that dock. He sits down with her. He knows exactly what to do. And then he takes her away. So maybe I was reading too much into it. Uh, uh, I mean, I've got some background information. And I also have my own speculations. Give me so, both. Give me all. <laughs> all right. So um, like there is a phenomenon where new types can sense each other. Um, but where we are, at least in origin, uh, there's just not a lot revealed about new types or the nature of what they are. Uh, but so the background information is that Char's father, Daikun, was like half prophet, half philosopher, and um, had these theories about a new evolution of humanity, a new type of person, a new type of human. So, you know, Char grows up hearing all about this stuff. And then we catch these little glimpses uh, in previous episodes, like uh, Garma's bullies come to harass him and he does this eyeball thing <laughs> and the guy freaks out. And then there's these scenes where like he'll confront the uh, the Federation rep 
again, there's like some weird vibe happening and, you know, everyone starts experiencing this uh, righteous anger <laughs> towards the Federation rep. Uh, to me, that was all like the hints that, okay, he's an emergent new type. Now there's this confirmation of this new evolution that his father was foreseeing. Interesting. Um, I don't know about diegetically, but thematically, it's a wonderful thought uh, because it goes into this theme of distance, uh, that they were drawn to each other across the void of space. That's what brought him to Earth. And we see it mirrored in the one uh, or personal possession she has, which is a photo of her family showing that she is physically distant from them, but always emotionally close. So this attack boat shows up and sinks that the master's ship. That's the casino owner, right? Yeah, I think so. And his, uh, they talk about him as a gang, but I think it's the gang that owns or runs the casino. Oh, organized uh, crime or something. So Char runs away with her, takes her back to the only place that he thinks is safe, where they'll be surrounded by trusted people, and that's the construction site. And I don't know that we ever get his name. I just think he's called the master. He ends up running and tagging along with them. Well, he doesn't last too long. Yeah, he does not last too long. Uh, there's a confrontation outside. Uh, Aga comes back and reveals that he has a new boss who's probably paying him better and quickly beheads <laughs> his former master. And then we see a more, I guess, vulgar display of Lala's new type powers. At first I thought she was telekinetically shifting the spinning blade, the chakra coming at Char from behind. But on closer inspection, I think she just communicates to Char the, the trajectory of it so he can dodge to the side, right? I think so, based on that dialogue, because he like asked her about it. I like So I actually, I thought the first time, just because he's probably a new type, that he could somehow sense it and do it. But then, you know, he like asks her, like, how did I know how to dodge that? Did you let me know somehow? And she's just like, no. And <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting that you identify the weapon as a chakra because I saw that on Xena, the warrior princess. <laughs> just saying like Tomino's probably a Xena fan. Who is it? <laughs> he gets them into the mobile worker um, and he tells Lala, come away with me. Let's go somewhere. Like how far a place? America or Japan? Actually, I meant somewhere farther. The camera pans up to look at the stars and there's specifically four stars twinkling, which are a constellation called Crux, uh, also known as the Southern Cross, which is bordered by the Centaur constellation, uh, which is cool because Centaur is a little bit like the mobile worker, this like humanoid top oh, yeah. half and this, uh, uh, you know, truck bottom half or mm -hmm. tank bottom half. But also I thought it might've been a little, a cute little nod to another anime series, Southern Cross, which was oh, uh, yeah. by the same company that did Macross. Mm -hmm. And when it got ported over to America was actually the second season of Robotech. Robotech yeah. Alex, did you ever see Robotech? That was like one of those after-school things. No, my big after-school things were probably Batman the Animated Series, Tiny uh, Toons, Animaniacs, okay. that sort of thing. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I never, it's very weird. I never really got into the animated action shows. I was talking to somebody about this the other day, how given that I'm so into comic books and superheroes, I could have cared less about like G.I. Joe and Transformers <laughs> and all of those things. No interest. But Tiny Toons, Animaniacs, hook me up. Right on. So this does not happen in the episode, but uh, where Char takes Lala is a place called the Flanagan Institute. 
which is controlled by Kaecilia. Hmm. Uh, and it's this facility that's set up to investigate like the new type phenomenon. Hmm. It's actually not a very nice place. Wait, did you say Flanagan? Mm-hmm. Which is like a really Irish name. So is Kaecilia like Irish? She's got the flaming red hair. I'm I'm terrible with names, and the only reason why I remember Flanagan Institute is because that was like the bass player from the Cro-Mags. Just a New York hardcore band. Always comes back to bass players on the show. Yeah, it does. Sorry, I'm struggling as to where we go next. It's uh, oh, in- um, Admiral Gop. He's like giving Tem Ray to her an orientation. Okay, and that's Amaro's purple-haired scientist dad? Yeah. So they're talking about Minovsky is defecting. Mm-hmm. Tem Ray was a student of Minovsky, which is why mm-hmm. he's able to build the Gundam. And, and so he's defecting from the space noids to the earth noids. So he's yeah. like, he's developed the mobile suit. And then now he's like, I'm going to go to the other side and mm-hmm. build yeah. mobile suits for them. Did they ever explain like why he's doing that? I was confused about that. Well, again, like, so this is not in the anime. This is something that's in the manga. Uh, so first off, Minowski is leaving because the Federation, uh, they're being forced out of Xeon. And anyone who's like nervous about that whole dynamic, they're leaving too. So like right now there's this big exodus happening and it's a convenient way for Minoski to get out. And the reason why he wants to get out is the way he sums up or sizes up Girin, he's like, "Uh uh-oh, this guy's a psychopath and Mm -hmm. we're headed towards a military dictatorship and holy shit, I got to get the fuck out of here. I would want to get out of from under Giran's thumb too. I would think he would murder me at the drop of a hat. (laughs) Oh, okay. And this scene is also interspersed with the military types and Tem Ray viewing footage of the first Zaku, right? The Mm -hmm. MS-04. They see it like in a space flight test and Tem is like blown away by this footage thinking, oh my gosh, he's actually done it. And what the military types seem to fail to realize is that Minovsky has miniaturized his reactor. It's evolved now and it's become something else entirely. And so even though the RX-76s, the RCXs, Mm -hmm. uh, even though they look like physically similar, they're actually very far apart because the Zakus have so much more energy at their disposal. Mm -hmm. That's kind of interesting just with the kind of new type thing, right? New types look just like people, but then they have these kind of hidden powers that make them, you know, Uh, much more formidable or whatever. There's a little bit of a criticism of like the military industrial complex, um, at least bringing up the mango. I think it's Temre who goes through like the development of military hardware throughout history. And when seeing the footage, uh, he immediately intuits like the, the future of warfare. He's looking at the mechs that the Federation have and they're anti-infantry is the way they're designed. And he's looking at what the Xeon made and their anti-mobile suit. Mm. <laughs> uh, I can't remember what historian it was that talked about this, but like most empires uh, start out a war fighting the last generation's war. So like World War II finishes, the US enters the Vietnam theater and they bring tanks because that's what was significant in World War II. Mm-hmm. But tanks did not work for jungle warfare. So then helicopters became the big thing. And then you go from that to the Gulf 
and like, oh, well, let's bring these helicopters. Well, RPGs are very well developed now and helicopters don't do very well in desert warfare. Mm. Uh, so here we have the same thing. Like the Federation, when they start gearing up for battle, they have these things called core fighters and they look like airplanes, but they're in outer space. And like that design doesn't make sense. And they still have these huge ships that look like seafaring vessels. And that doesn't make sense too much either. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this mobile suit thing, that's where it's going to (laughs) go. Yeah. And I think Admiral Gopp says this line. Apparently apparently they're calling these things mobile suits. suits, Which means that the Xeon terminology is what stayed. Mm. Mobile suit Gundam. I have a question, and this is very much jumping ahead, but mobile suits and Gundams, are those two different things? Gundam is a specific design line of mobile suits. Okay. Are Gundams always Earthnoid? They're made by that Anaheim Electronics, and they're that white base with like the red, blue, and gold. Is that what makes it a Gundam? Or is that what all Gundams look like? Or is that Yeah, and they all they all they all at least have certain design elements. They always have a crest. They usually have that style of a face. That definitely and again this is jumping ahead towards the end of the episode, but was a very mm. disassociative moment for me. For a person who's, you know, hanging on the edge of the cliff trying to understand what's going on here, where I'm watching this progression like you're talking about of the different weaponry. I'm like, okay, all right, so these got these large tanks that are rolling around i don't think those are the mobile suits and then you see them walking around tied to cables and i was like okay all right maybe those are the mobile suits then i see them without the cables and i'm like yeah those are the mobile suits and they're like no these are faster they have small things inside of them they're very tiny and they make them very powerful and one of them is red and i was like there it is there's the mobile suit the mobile suit gundam i got it we finally got there at episode four and then the guy comes out at the end and he's like this is my gundam and i was like what is going on <laughs> Um, I think I got it now. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. It was weird to me that the, the Gundam reveal was a CGI thing instead of just mm-hmm. the consistent animation. Hmm. I, well, I think did you that. made a, a core choice there because I think all mobile suits are CGI in this series. I don't oh. think there's any uh, straight animation. Wow. They fooled me, man. Like, it looks pretty good. I love the action animation in this. So we we check in with Amuro, right? Mm-hmm. He's grown a little bit since last episode. He's acclimated somewhat to his new living conditions. But we see that other than Fra, Fra Frau Brau, what, how do we pronounce her name? I Frau. love It's Frau Bow. Oh Frau Brau. Okay. No, so Bow. Not Brau. Bow. Bow? Yes. Okay. Frau, Frau Bow. She's such a caretaker. I adore her. I think she ends up being a new type too. But we see that she is physically close to Amaro, but... Amaro is, again, emotionally distant. He's treating her that way because he's getting that dynamic from his father, right? Tamray comes in, kind of disregards Frau, and then, like, doesn't care about how his son is doing. Like, he's mm-hmm. obviously kind of all over the place. He's not cleaning up. Who knows how much he's attending school? But Tamray has no concern for that. Like, it, it, he might as well not be there. He's come home, but he should have just stayed wherever he was working. Yeah, the most consistent interaction is his dad yelling at him about wearing pants. Yeah. His only concern is, like, to what degree his son is or isn't an embarrassment to him. And Amuro is the kid with the green ball that I don't know what it is yet, but I know it's important because it's part of the logo. Is that Haro. right? Yeah. Okay. It's kind of a mascot. It's like a an electronic friend or an electronic okay. pet. Yeah. Full disclosure, there was one point when the ball came out, I was like, 
is that the mobile suit? Yeah, just getting back to this jerky dad. Uh, he buys this thing to be like Amro's friend slash nanny. And, and this is, I mean, I guess this is like a trope in everything, but I think we've especially seen it in anime or the anime series that we've watched so far of this kind of like distant or uninvolved or kind of like clueless father figure. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess this guy kind of really uh, maps on uh, to what's his name? Gendo? Yeah, Gendo. I'd already forgotten yeah. his name. So he's a horrible dad, but he basically is the creator of the the Gundam, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, his his invention may save humanity or save the Earth sphere, but at the emotional cost of his son. Sure, yeah. But but then we in both these stories, right? It's like, oh yeah, the emotional cost of the son, but then the son is going to become a world saving, universe saving hero in his own right. I don't know. Is it almost like this like romanticization of like childhood neglect and then what that does your psychology or whatever? I think ostensibly, yeah, on its surface level. Like, yes, he gets to fulfill this almost superhero like fantasy, but he is an incomplete person. Like we see he he can't meet Frau on like an even emotional playing field. He has trouble relating to other people around him. He even has trouble like keeping himself fed uh, because he spends so much time in front of this computer. Yeah, Yeah, because we have a lot of superheroes who are orphans. And so they have like maybe some like unfillable need from that. Are there any superheroes that just have shitty parents? (laughs) (laughs) Is that a a thing at all? I mean, Uh, yes. Uh, You know, it's actually a big thing or used to be a big thing with the mutant characters in Marvel, the X-Men characters. They don't do it as much anymore or really I haven't seen it in years, but it used to be a thing that you get your mutant powers at puberty. That was the big thing. So it was a whole metaphor of somebody who's a jerk teenager anyway. Their parents see them changing in weird ways, get scared about them and send them either to Professor X's school or somewhere else. So they usually hate their kids and are scared of their kids. But for the most part, like you're saying, yeah, they're orphans. They have a death of their past. I think that comes again from probably Batman, Superman going further down the line. Certainly everybody wants to make the next Spider-Man. So you got your uncle Ben there dying and that's Mm -hmm. such a formative experience that it plays through in almost every young hero that you ever see. Um, But also, you know, Disney princesses, (laughs) same sort of thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's just a trope of the hero genre that you have to have, I think that dark thing in your past that motivates you. Hmm. Uh, Yeah. Or maybe you have to move away from your parents to establish your own identity. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like the anime trope we're coming across is like one dead parent and one absent parent is like, <laughs> that's like their their hero formula. I don't know. Yeah. So I don't know a lot about this, but I'm going to guess that T'Challa had a pretty cool childhood. Yeah. Right. He had both his folks growing up. He did. But his father's death kind of does actually motivate him because he becomes the Black Panther after his father. So it is this living up to a legacy thing, at least in his case. Um, yeah, I mean, if you have a happy childhood and you don't really want for anything, there's been stories like that where there's an alternate user, Batman, where both his parents survive. 
he's a rich jerk. Oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> a pile of money flies through his window and he's like, I want to be a billionaire. And then he dresses up as a billionaire and that's pretty much it. <laughs> Did, did you guys watch the uh, the Teen Titans movie by any chance? That movie is so good. I love it's that movie. It's so fucking good. Yeah, I love that movie. And one of my favorite jokes in it is uh, they have this thing where it's like they can time travel. I forget exactly what the premise was, but they can go back and solve all of these like horrible things that happen. And they, they stop all of these like origin stories of these superheroes. And then they go back to the future and like everything is on fire and there's just super <laughs> villains running around everywhere. And then they're like, Oh God, we have, we have to go back and undo what we did. And there's just this great moment where it's like, they're at the alleyway. <laughs> oh like, man. Just, they have to just like let Batman's parents die. And they're just like, Ugh. that's pretty dark are we talking so about the teen, the teen titans go movie yeah it's it's a it's a weird i was gonna movie. show that to my kids oh, <laughs> oh no they'll love it they'll love it my kids watch it it's so funny it that's definitely the darkest moment of the thing the other thing that i'll warn you about there's this great joke at the end of the movie we're getting very far afield but i will talk about teen titans go to the movies all day every day uh there's a joke at the end of the movie where robin is giving a speech to all the heroes and they're clapping and cheering for him and then he just keeps going with the speech and they're like robin we need to wrap up the movie please stop talking and he keeps talking and getting louder and doing the speech and then they start rolling the credits and robin jumps on the screen and says Parents, ask ask where babies come from. And then it cuts to black. And that was definitely a moment where I was like, like <laughs> immediately they had, were like, hey, what did you just say? And I was like, God, I don't know. I couldn't hear it. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no idea. They're urging kids to ask their parents where babies come from. <laughs> yes. I do appreciate that spoiler. <laughs> yeah. Great movie, though. Highly recommend You just it. see the credits and hit power. If you oh, like yeah. Mobile Suit Gundam, you'll love Teen Titans Go to the Movies. Okay, so uh, child abuse aside, uh, we go to our next scene is actually the first mission of uh, the Zaku, or, or Mobile Suits in general. Uh, we have five in total. Uh, we have the three black tri-stars who are under the command of Ramba Rawl, and they are trudging towards a rendezvous point because Char is supposed to be meeting them up ahead, which I don't understand why. I guess just to characterize him as a loner and to maybe give us a sense that his mobile suits will always be faster than everyone else's. Yeah, just a little bit more from the manga. So like when Char deposits Lala... It's Kaecilia's institution. She gets him back into the military. Uh, Rambo Rall and the Black Stars are under Dozel's authority. It is kind of confusing. Like, why didn't they launch from the same thing? But they're not actually just like one unit, if that makes mm. sense. No, that makes perfect sense. Thanks for clearing that up. And these, spoiler, like in the original series, these are the five mobile suit aces that Amuro will have to contend with. It's a little fan servicey, but I kind of enjoyed the structure. Uh, we get to see that at the same time Kaecilia is in disguise, she's with this Major Bergman, 
who is nervous throughout everything, which I initially thought was because he knows who Kaecilia is and Kaecilia is a zombie. And if anything happens to a zombie, he's fucking dead, right? Yeah. Well, she's also in charge of the secret police. So he could end up in a bag and no one would ever see him again. And she nonchalantly drops this bit about the, the leak of the Zaku, the MS4 test footage. I thought it came from Minovsky, but it sounds like uh, her spy organization kind of just let the Federation have that. She does some weird maneuvers like in the last episode too that aren't like in their best interests. Mm-hmm. Icilia uh, being in disguise, that's because Granada is like a Federation aligned place. So she yes. just can't go in there looking like Kaecilia. But yes. she's meeting with the mayor and he knows who she is. Yeah, I think so. Or she just wants to try out being a blonde. Yeah. Because she's a woman, Alex. She does have a lot of fun as a blonde. Um, she does. I feel so sorry for her freaking guy. Oh, Bergman? Yeah. Uh, she's like, call me Catherine. And like, by the way, I'm going to kill you later. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's that disparity of power, man. You can't have true consent. It works both ways, right? Did it, did it give us any like hints at the beginning that that was Kaecilia? I remember for a while, like trying to figure out if, um, you know, this was like an aged, uh, like one of the blonde characters from oh. earlier. Oh, I had the same problem. It wasn't until the second time through that I was like, oh, right, of course, that's Kaecilia. But I, I thought she was a new character. I knew it was her the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we get back with Manovsky. He's in a car with uh, bodyguards, but the car and the drivers of the car are property and employees of Zionic. And mm-hmm. Zionic is the competitor to Anaheim, right? Like, yes. like the Federation is poaching Minovsky, but really yeah. Anaheim wants him so that Zionic doesn't have him. What I did like, though, was uh, that it had six wheels. It's just like six-wheeled vehicle, awesome. and they're on the moon. And one of my favorite arcade games was Moon Patrol back in the 80s, where you're in a six-wheeled vehicle driving on the moon, doing sweet jumps. Is there a Mobile Suit Gundam game of any sort? Is there a video game? Yeah, there's several. Oh, yes. a whole ton. Some okay. very, very bad ones and some very, very good ones. I haven't played it, but Brian has played one. Yeah, Battle Ops 2. Yeah, like an MMO match-based uh, one. Okay. Yeah, it's a free-to-play, and uh, it's strictly the Universal Century timeline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of little details. Uh, are there any set in the Texas place so you can have like a horse riding (laughs) simulator or anything like that that would be fun uh there could be a patch eventually okay i've been really surprised by some of the weird stuff they pulled out just gta texas colony like a free world almost doesn't matter that it's in a future place or anything like like that every once in a while space noid citizen living your everyday life So, so Alex used to be really into the uh, Armored Core series, which is like a mech series that's a lot of fun. And then there was like Zone of Enders. Is it kind of like that, that type of game, Brian? Uh, Zone of Enders, that was like in space, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, the colonies are very similar to the colonies we have in this, these huge yeah. sprawling cityscapes. Yeah, Battle Ops has uh, ground and space maps that you can play. Are the space maps super disorienting because you actually do fight in 3D? Yeah, a little bit annoying, actually. I I don't (laughs) like playing them. (laughs) Totally imagine. 
and then this theme of distance comes up again when the Zaku come up on uh, Minovsky's vehicle. Like he's so close to being uh, safe in Federation Anaheim hands, just not close enough. Yeah. So um, again, in the manga, um, the politics come into it a little bit more. Minovsky probably could have been retrieved because uh, there's a Federation fleet. But politically, this guy, this Anaheim guy, wanted to showcase his mobile suits. Oh. So there was no fleet. They just sent these 12 mobile suits, and they're like, yeah, this is going to be our shining moment. Yeah. Uh, they call in the, what is it called? The Iron Cavalry, right? Yeah. These 12 brand-new gun cannons, and they just eat it. And Char, like, he starts his carrier or ship-killing career pretty early in that he takes down this, the the carrier that the gun cannons launch from. And I thought it was funny in that first scene when they show the top secret footage, one of the people remarks, oh, those are 100 millimeter rounds. It's like a tank shell, but it's going to take something bigger than that to take down one of our ships. And Char actually uses a 120 millimeter machine gun, which has no problem taking out this ship. Yeah, he one shots a shuttle and then he... Goes and hits the uh, carrier in the critical areas. Coming from the perspective of somebody who knows this is a prequel, but doesn't know anything about the property, it was kind of surprising to me how easily they killed people off throughout the series. Just because I went into this expecting these characters pop up. Okay, they're setting up this character for later in the series. That's why they're there. And then two minutes into the episode, they're dead. Or say specifically about (laughs) Madovsky, it feels like this is a character who is going to show them how to build the mobile suits. He's going to show up in the series. He'll be their tech guy who's be like, now, Char, this is the new version of the mobile suit. <laughs> it has these really cool things in the wrist. You got to check it, you know, like that sort of Q character. But nope, dead, crushed on the yeah. moon. Very sad. Yeah. So next Holy episode, God. Sean Bean shows up. Oh, that explains it. There you go. This, this is maybe a spoilers okay. question, but so, so does Char eventually join the Federation? So the storyline goes way, way past Mobile Suit Gundam, the original series, and he is not allied with Zeon later on mm. in subsequent series. He becomes an independent agent okay. and he fights on the side of the cause that he feels uh is i don't know most progressive at the time maybe i guess that makes sense with the way they're kind of setting him up as this wild card character so he goes on to be that in the yeah the main and, and too. not a spoiler because this was just the original concept and they deviated from this in actual production but originally amuro the main character that he was going to die halfway through the series and uh white base uh the main ship was actually going to ally with char and char was going to become the new pilot of the gundam yeah the novel based on the original script that that's how it ends as well oh wow Oh, uh, I guess that was like a huge freaking spoiler. That's great. Wow. <laughs> anyone, read the novel, you I might be reading the book. <laughs> I'm not going to remember by the time I get there, so I'm good. Oh, God. Well, I hope my brother's not listening. I gave him the book for Christmas. So. <laughs> Sorry. So in this first mobile suit encounter, this historic event, we get a couple of cool things. At one point, Gaia, one of the Black Tri-Stars, the leader of that 
trio actually he's face to face with one of these gun cannons and to avoid a shot he like lowers his shoulder and then boosts into the other mobile suit kind of just like clocking it in the chest with his shoulder which becomes an iconic move used by zaku's later and then one of the other tristars comes up jumps almost onto gaia's back and then fires a, a rocket round straight into the thing. Yeah. Like a goddamn madman. It's very dangerous. These things have nuclear reactors in them. And if you hit them the wrong way, like it could kill you too in your mobile suit. I love you being the safety inspector for giant robot space suits. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Hey, be careful with that thing, buddy. Come on, there's a nuclear reactor in there. Be careful. Come on. What's the matter, you? <laughs> And equally iconic and tragically symbolic, Ramba, ever trying to make the best of a situation and not kill people needlessly, he tries to reason with Minovsky one more time. I mean, kind of extort him, but saying like, hey, you're surrounded by people who want to kill you if you don't do what I say. But Minovsky, for whatever reason, he's, I guess, just terrified of Zeon. He thinks even if he goes back, maybe they'll kill him anyways. And so we get this moment where he is crushed to death by the technology that he helped design. And his whole defection is highly reminiscent of the real world Operation Paperclip, where mm. Nazi scientists were brought to America by the CIA after World War II. And he's actually killed on the way to Von Braun City. Oh, wow. Who was the main Nazi scientist brought to America to head not only a science division, but our space division, right? He headed up the NASA rocket program. Yeah, so, so he went from designing, I think, basically intercontinental missiles and that kind of rocket to then the space program. But then like our space program was also not like exactly a front, but a way that we could do research into making intercontinental ballistic missiles, but not say that, say like, oh, we're going to the moon or whatever. But this just happens to use all of the same math and technology. And so that's like almost a one-to-one -one parallel that mobile suits have this great constructive capability that they can be mobile workers, that they can operate in all of these environments that humans couldn't before but they are being developed as weapons uh, in the same way that rockets could take us to the moon, but more often than not, the military wanted to put a nuclear warhead on top of them. And, and we kind of talked about this two episodes ago with like, you know, the military's investment in robotics now, right? And it's always, they say like, oh, this is to defuse bombs or something, right? Because that sounds great, like a robot that defuses bombs that's going to save lives or whatever. But then, you know, that same technology can be used for a lot of different purposes, right? Oh, yeah. I can't remember how many years ago it was, but there was a Black Lives Matter demonstration in, I want to say Dallas. Anyways, there was a, uh, a gunman who started firing on police. Oh, yeah he was holed up inside of a parking structure and they actually used a bomb diffusing robot armed with mm -hmm. a stick of C4. And they just drove that up to him and exploded it. Wow, a real, <laughs> that's horrifying. Yeah. So the Zaku make quick work of the gun cannons. 
And then we move to Caecilia, right? Mm -hmm. She's talking to the mayor of Granada, which Granada, named after a a real place on Earth. It's the capital of a region of the same name uh, that actually resides in Andalusia, Spain, which is where Sela, Char, and Mr. Tiablo were before uh, uh, going to Texas Colony. Mm. And this mayor, he has the same head as Aga. (laughs) Do you think he stole his head? (laughs) <laughs> i do it could be a budget just, thing for the animators like well we got all these head templates <laughs> we gotta use these all right so a lot of deaths right minoski's dead this mayor's dead what's the guy's name the caecilia's date oh uh, uh bergman bergman's dead so like what i saw with all of this was like just these failures of reading situational awareness well we have a Historic event, Caecilia says that, uh, as the mayor says, like, oh, I have assurances from Prime Minister Girin, and Caecilia stops him and says, oh, I'm sorry, Supreme Commander Girin. Like, we are a principality now, and that is no longer his position. He is now Supreme Commander, which, again, is going to parallel Girin's rise with Hitler's rise. Mm -hmm. I don't know who else stopped the newspaper front page so that they could read the whole thing, but I sure did. Mm -hmm. Uh, The mayor's Mm -hmm. name is Smokey Wilson. (laughs) uh, And it describes him as a liberal politician, which... Importantly, in the rise of the Nazi party, liberal Democrats actually sided with the Nazis against the socialists. And then later in uh, Hitler's Germany, like as uh, the Nazis were in supreme power, those liberal Democrats were all done away with. Smokey Wilson. Yeah. Awesome name. I'd vote for him. (laughs) (laughs) Vote Smokey. And, and if he made some sausages, I would totally buy them. Uh, yeah, so it's an overwhelming victory for the Zeon forces. It seems like everything's downhill, and now we need, I guess, the hope that Temray kind of personifies. Um, uh, we check in with Amaro again. Yep, Amaro's reading all of his dad's top secret research, which I got to say, I found it really believable because... Uh, my father worked for General Dynamics in the 80s at the peak of the Cold War. And did you read some of his top secret stuff? I went into his office all the time. <laughs> mm, okay. So I guess even Gellian, we have that. Attack on Titan has mm. that too, right? Isn't the main character's father, didn't he do something with like developing? Yeah, he uh, developed, I vaguely remember this, anti-Titan technology or something like that. That, that feels like it's like this pattern now of, you know, the father developing the technology and then the the son having this like unique power to use the mm-hmm. technology. And I feel like that's almost something that's like almost like a real world, you know, like these people who went to a school or their parents just happen to have like a really early mm-hmm. computer and then they become Bill Gates or something just because they had this technology like 10 years before everyone so else. So th- and- this father's son, son thing is taking my mind back to this Western superhero uh, archetypes. And uh, I don't know a lot about the the cyborg character, but I just saw the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League. (laughs) And uh, the guy's dad (laughs) did all this crazy stuff to to Victor, who became Mm -hmm. cyborg. Is that how it was in the comics? They tweak it a little bit for the Snyder cut, but 
Yeah, essentially, Victor gets in a big accident. Most of his body is wrecked. His father's a scientist, has this experimental technique, and turns him into a cyborg off that. And for not just that reason, also the fact that his father is a huge jerk. <laughs> he yeah, just man. does not like him at all. Um, I recommend, if you are interested in cyborg, this is getting a little far afield. If you watch the Snyder Cut and you like the Cyborg stuff, which I think legitimately was the good part of the Snyder Cut, uh, go watch Doom Patrol. It was on DC Universe. It's on HBO Max now. It's awesome. It's a weird quirky very strange very funny series brendan Fraser is in it playing robot man yeah. you guys like oh robots? God, i've been watching casting. this show so you love mm-hmm. it uh and uh also matt bomer i don't know if you know him but he plays this guy named negative man who's basically he is covered in bandages like the invisible man and this thing called the negative spirit could come out of him it's just a bunch of damaged superheroes living in a house together who under no circumstances want to be superheroes or do anything mm-hmm. super heroic uh cyborg is one of them he's the only one who is <gasps> really yeah he's the only one of them who's a superhero and he's constantly like let's do superhero stuff guys and they're like no we're good we yeah. got dinner we gotta have dinner <laughs> It's great. Uh, it's yeah. it's one of the best, uh, not just superhero series, but series on right now. So uh, okay. that was a long way of saying, yes, it's the same origin in Doom Patrol. <laughs> it's the same kind of origin in the Snyder Cut and in the comics as well. I will say I was really impressed that uh, that Cyborg helped uh, a struggling single mom to pay her bills. Like that was his first act of heroism. Hey, listen, the, I don't know if you guys saw Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but the first episode that was mostly about bank loans so that's oh, yeah, a that's big right. thing right now. It's just financials. And that's what people want. They don't want to see superheroes. They want to see like, what's up with their taxes? It's almost tax time. Are they using TurboTax? Are they going to a guy? Are they doing that over Zoom? Or are they doing it in person and you know social distancing? These are all the questions that we have about superhero film and movie right now. So you have oh. seen the last episode of Gundam Origins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. I'm going to time that out for, what is it now? May 17th? Uh, May 17th, I'll watch it. All right. Uh, yeah, uh, reality intersects with fantasy. Uh, good plug for uh, Doom Patrol. Uh, I watched the first season and was very enamored with it uh, because it borrows heavily from the Grant Morrison run of mm-hmm. Doom Patrol, the mm-hmm. comics, which is uh, one of my favorites. Yeah, season two is, I will, uh, if you haven't checked it out, great as well. Super weird, deeper, funnier. Love it. Good stuff. Awesome. And funny enough, Doom Patrol. Okay, this is, I have to put this trivia in though, because the world needs to know. Uh, So Doom Patrol actually has an interesting relationship with X-Men in that it predates X-Men by a little bit. And it was the first misfit team of superheroes, uh, which the X-Men would be much greater remembered for. Doom Patrol goes back to the 60s? Yes. There's a couple of concepts in concept comics that just kind of happened at the same time. And it's unclear whether people were copying each other, whether it's just parallel brainstorming, what's going on. And Doom Patrol is one of those down to their leader is a very cranky guy in a wheelchair, you know, so mm-hmm. they're all living in a badge together and they help a world that hates and fears them. Kind of the same thing. Okay. There's also Challengers of the Unknown, which I think okay. they show up actually in the second season of Doom Patrol. And they're these four explorers who got caught in a cosmic accident and they don't get powers or anything, but they still go on weird explorations and go on science adventures. And then a couple of years later, the fantastic four popped up. So again, you have a lot of things where it's because there's not good records back then. 
maybe copying, maybe not, <laughs> but uh, they certainly happen quite a bit. I, I am curious, is it often the the second one that ends up being the popular one? Like, is it kind of like a good idea, but bad execution? And then someone like sort of maybe steals the idea, but then I mean, does it better? There is a like, great book. It's kind of a controversial book, but it was written by a friend of mine named Abraham Reisman called True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee that's out right now. I highly recommend everybody read it. It's this great biography of Stan Lee, and it goes through the whole creation process. Uh, Abe has taken a lot of flack from comic book people because they love Stan Lee, of course. But uh, there's a lot of discussion about how much did he actually create of those things. And it's arguable that part of his genius was taking other ideas mm. and plussing them up a little bit. And that's pretty much it. So. You know, the, at the mm. time when Fantastic Four and X-Men and all these things were coming out, they were jabbing out so many comics all the time. It wasn't like they were trying to create art. They were just trying to make deadlines. They're like, hey, we got to create a comic by three o'clock today. All right, let's do it. Oh, wow. You know, so that sort of thing. So they're just jamming out all these ideas. And maybe he stole it. Maybe he even stole it from other people in his company. But Things like the Fantastic Four, I think, honestly, often come down to we just got to get something out there. We got to make some product. And mm -hmm. these things hit because it was something like Challengers Without Known that was like they go into space and they come back and then they go into space again. He was like, <laughs> what if they go into space and instead they get powers? <laughs> and one of them's a monster. Yeah. And that's better. <laughs> so there you go. So at some point, does anyone ever say, to me, my Doom Patrol? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Probably. <laughs> I hope so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The next section was uh, Frau Bao and Amaro. Who are now we're going to call Frau Moreau as their relationship name. <laughs> Frau Moreau. Okay. So, again, in the manga. There's this uh, anxiety uh, among the colonies because as soon as... Uh, Zeon declares independence and they're a principality uh, like three seconds later there's these military campaigns that begin. So anyway, Kaecilia she's doing this military campaign. She's taking Von Braun, she's taking Granada Dozel, he takes out the Lunar Federation fleet and then Rambal Rao uh, goes from this Minos failed Minoski mission to beginning the assault on uh, side two I think. Uh, and they're assaulting individual colony cylinders and then this sort of like informs the emotional state that we see with Frau's family and herself right mm -hmm. so their side only has two colonies and they're specifically federation colonies and the the feeling is oh my gosh there's open warfare now and you don't know if your colony is the next to be attacked so I was very sympathetic with Frau when she goes over and like in this uncertain time, she wants to see this boy she likes mm -hmm. and like, he's just obsessed on the computer upstairs <laughs> and, you know, she goes up to yell at her, uh, him. And uh, I see this a lot. There's an emotional thing that uh, begins the release and then all the other emotional stuff that's carried with it, all of it comes out. I just thought it was a really endearing moment. Uh, painful, but... I'm a little bit forgetful. Is this the Christmas? Yeah, I think it's Christmas. We get a couple of scenes with uh, uh, Frau and her parents. I actually love that framing. We we see reports of 
how the war is progressing on the television that her parents are just watching, giving us a sense of how the average citizen is experiencing these conflicts. Yeah, I was just going to put in some context that Christmas is essentially Valentine's Day in Japan. Yeah. So it's not a family holiday. It's like a romantic holiday where Christmas Eve, you go out on a date. So I think when she's asking him like, oh, what are you like doing for Christmas? That's like essentially asking him out or something like that. She makes him dinner. She makes lasagna and brings it over. There's nothing more romantic than a nice (laughs) tray of lasagna. (laughs) Well, she tried cake, and that didn't work. No, <laughs> the cake did not so work. Uh, so you got to go big. They both have layers. So yeah. there you go. Um, there's a character, Kai, that we saw earlier, and he's a big asshole. Uh, Haro does not think he's a good influence on Amuro. But there's this endearing moment that's in the manga, and again, not in the anime. But when, when the conflict finally occurs at Side 7, where Amuro is living, it's total chaos and they have to evacuate the entire colony very quickly. And there are, they're referred to as kind of like war orphans. There's these little kids who just don't know what to do because their parents get killed in the, the chaos. And Kai is the one who like calms them down and like gets them on the ship. And it's just one of these things like, I don't know, he's not a bad person, but he's, he's kind of a dick. But like in this crisis, like it brings out, the best of him and and he becomes a friend of Amro later. Well yeah, this is awesome. Did anybody have any final takes on the episode? Is this the first time that we see Char actually care about another person? He cares about his sister. But so at least Lala is the relationship in his life that he's investing in now. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts, Alex? You know, I, I gotta say uh, that I enjoyed watching the show. I mean, I know this isn't specifically about this episode, but watching these first four, I didn't know what to expect going into it. I'm still not 100% sure what to expect, but it, in a very pleasant way, reminded me of Game of Thrones a little bit. You start with this inciting incident of a death. It kicks off this transition of power. You have the kids running away to a faraway place because they're in big danger, all these different factions fighting. And also, I always think this is a good thing about the best HBO shows is they just kind of give you this world and throw you in the deep end and say, well, catch up. And that's true of Game of Thrones. That's true of, say, Rome or Deadwood or anything like that, where it isn't that the first episode or two are bad. It's just, you don't understand what's going mm. on because there's so much world that happened before it. Yeah. In this mm-hmm. case, obviously there was an entire season that happened before it that I didn't see. So I think that probably helps them a little bit, um, mm. but I like that, you know, I, I didn't mind not knowing who these people are or anything, because then you find the things that you can hold on to, like, Char as a character, I think, is really cool and enigmatic and interesting. You don't know where his loyalties lie at any particular time or how he's going to manipulate people. The action is pretty good and big. Um, I guess she doesn't show up until much later, but I really liked Artesia a lot. That feels like a very different positive character in the Mm. midst of all this grim murdering and everything else Mm -hmm. that's going on. But it's fun. It's the sort of thing that I, I watched four episodes of and being an anime neophyte I'd certainly be interested in checking out a couple more of this at the very least to see how this story ends. So, so thank you for that. Nice. Uh, Thank you. So having only seen four episodes, what would you say Gundam 
the origin is about? Probably the cost of freedom or the price of war or something like that. You see a lot of these future colony stories, and I don't think it's derivative. I'm not saying that, but the sort of thing where somebody on Earth starts a colony on another planet years later, they say, hey, we want independence. And they're all some sort of metaphor for some sort of uh, succession from the Union. But uh, there's been so many wars like that throughout the history of humanity that I think there's a lot to pull on there. And I think that's what I took away from it is a more thematic thing is who gets freedom, who gets to be free? How do you get to be free? I do think it was interesting that they were kind of focusing on Artesia and Char who are these two members of almost kind of a Royal family. Mm -hmm. So you're supposed to identify with them. So uh, I'd definitely be interested and curious to see how that all turns out at the end of the day, given that I'm sure the folks who made this have a slightly different view of history <laughs> than mm -hmm. I do growing up and knowing literature, mostly from the United States. I just had a, a thought hearing you talk about that. And then I think hearing Alex talk so much about the theme of distance in this, you know, so often the way we organize government and things like that is just based on proximity. And then we do have these weird things of colonies where you're like part of the same nation, but you're no longer physically connected, right? You might be separated by the sea or in this case space. And then how there's always some sort of tension there, right? Because maybe the interests of the people in the colony and the homeland aren't completely connected. And that that's something that just seems to happen with, with people and, and distance is that, you know, you start getting disconnected. Mm, that's interesting. Well, thank you so much for being on. This has been really wonderful. I don't want to take up your entire evening. Uh, you've been really generous with us so far uh, and flexible too. So if someone wanted to, we covered it a little bit, but if someone wanted to check out your work, where would they find you? Yeah, a couple of places. First of all, Comic Book Club. We do the live show every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. to Crowdcast and YouTube. Come hang out. I'm happy to talk to you about Mobile Suit Gundam Origins episodes <laughs> one, two, three, or four. But we also have great comic book guests on every week writers and artists. We have a ton of other podcasts. You can check out at comicbookclublive.com. Also, decider.com. I'm the managing editor over there. Um, I don't write quite as much, uh, but the writers there are great and cover everything about all of TV and streaming, and I work with them constantly. And also on Twitter. I'm on Twitter way too much, so at Azalben, A-Z-A-L-B-E-N. Check me out there, and you'll get lots of links and lots of terrible, terrible dad jokes. So there you go. <laughs> So I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but uh, so you're a content creator in many different outlets. Like, is there like an episode of something that like maybe stands out to you as especially exciting? Oh, sure. Of Comic Book Club. Mm -hmm. um, well, I'll actually, I could plug something that is coming Please. up if you want. I don't know when this episode is going to go up necessarily. Within uh, the month, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's fair. So this either... I'll plug something that either is coming up or just <laughs> happened. Uh, we are huge fans of the comic book Lock and Key on the show. I don't know if you guys know yes. it. Show Hill, we made yeah. into a show on Netflix recently, which was super fun as well. Uh, and we were such big fans and such early adopters that all three of us at different points were actually written into the book. Uh, so we appear what? as characters. It's crazy. I still can't believe it happened. I'm not even trying to. I knew you looked familiar. <laughs> right? <laughs> Dr. Zalbin. <laughs> there you go. 
yeah, so I, I'm a doctor. My co-host Pete and Justin are in it as well. Pete gets cut in half. Justin <sighs> insists that he doesn't die, but a boulder falls on him and he dies. Uh, but very honored to do that. They're doing a spinoff series. If you know The Sandman, the comic book by Neil Gaiman, they're doing an upcoming crossover called Lock and Key of the Sandman, Hell and God, that mixes what? the lock. And, I know it's wild. The Lock and Key universe with the Sandman universe. It looks awesome. And on April 13th, we're going to have uh, Joe Hill, the writer, Gabriel Rodriguez, the artist, and Chris Ryle, the editor of all the Lock and Key books, are going to be on our live show talking about the first issue of Heligon, which comes out the next day. So I am beyond excited about that. I love talking wow. to them uh, and I'm very excited to check out that book. So again, either join us for the live show, you can ask questions live. Uh, we have an audience there that's always chatting and it's super fun. Uh, or otherwise you can listen to the podcast literally anywhere. That sounds really, really cool. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I hope so. I hope we don't yeah. screw it up. <laughs> Are we ready? Mm-hmm. Ten. Ten. Pals, Haro. Haro. love it. That was perfect. All right, All right. Alex, thank you so much. 